we have been preaching through the books of the Bible. Today, our journey brings us to the second book of Samuel, and our message for the day is called God of the Throne. God of the Throne. Israel as a nation began with God's call of Abraham, through whom God would set in motion the greatest plan of all. At first, the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob ruled and led their families. Upon Jacob's death in Egypt, that mantle of leadership fell on Joseph instead of his firstborn Reuben. Now Joseph is second in command in Egypt, next only to Pharaoh. The book of Exodus begins ominously telling us there arose another Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And as you can imagine, this led to dire consequences for the children of Israel who languished in slavery and hard labor. Four centuries of suffering and plus later, God raises Moses to lead them out of Egypt. Moses was not a king. As far as we can tell, Moses clearly understood that he was a leader and a servant of the Lord, but not a ruler over Israel. As much as the nation continued to have a love-hate relationship with Moses, as much as they looked up to him for leadership, guidance, deliverance, and direction, they could plainly see he was no king. Even as Moses lived, God slowly stripped him away. We see this in the book of Deuteronomy. God slowly stripped him away of many aspects of his leadership role and invested them in Joshua, who eventually takes the reins of leadership from Moses upon his death. A new generation of Israelites enter the promised land under Joshua, who led them in their first few years as they settled down in the promised land and began to enjoy their promised inheritance that God delivered to them in faithfulness to the promise he made Abraham. Sometime towards the end of the book of Joshua, we see a shift in leadership and the paradigm of leadership in Israel. As Israel began to grow and prosper, they often forsook the Lord and his covenant with them, and their covenant relationship suffered as a result. This led to them suffering painful consequences, and we read this in the book of Judges. Painful because they brought it upon themselves. So we read in the book of Judges that as a people, they did not distinguish themselves from their neighbors, often capitulating to idolatry and rebellion and being punished severely for their betrayal. Each time they fell apart, God raised up a judge who would deliver them from their enemies. The people and the land would have a semblance of peace, but sadly, old habits did not die, and soon old madness becomes new madness, and the tragic saga repeated over and over. By the time we get to the first book of Samuel, Israel had been led by a series of judges, at least one who was also a prophet. These judges led Israel and to a certain extent ruled over Israel, not as kings or during the time of Deborah as a queen, but as God appointed leaders over his people. In this way, Israel was distinct from other nations in the area. What bound them together was the Lord who was one 
his word revealed through his servant, whether it was a prophet like Moses or a judge or another prophet. And what held them together was this law revealed through Moses. This law was the political, social, and moral constitution of Israel. That was their common identity. People of the Lord, chosen people. Abraham's children, all these tribes put together. For as long as they were faithful to this living, this sort of living, this unique life, and passing it on faithfully as a legacy to future generations, all would be well. But it was rarely so. Israel was notoriously stubborn and inconsistent in their love for God and worship of the Lord God, who considered them his chosen people, his treasured possession. First Samuel begins with two of the last great judges. Eli was old, and in his last days, his legacy of leadership was tarnished by his two corrupt sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Even when Eli was alive, the mantle of leadership passes on to Samuel, who is now the appointed leader of God over his people. Strangely in Samuel, the three separate offices of leadership in Israel came together, perhaps not always, but at least a few times. Samuel functions as a judge, as a prophet, and also as a priest. But to Samuel, it was plenty clear that he was not a king. Samuel not only understood that the Lord was king over Israel and all that leaders did was serve as representatives of God who was king on earth, speaking, serving, and leading Israel in that capacity as a judge, occasionally as a prophet and also as a priest in the case of Samuel. No wonder Samuel is immensely hurt and bothered when the people come to him demanding for a king so they may be like the other nations around them. Samuel pleads with them to preserve their unique identity as God's chosen people, but the Lord comforts Samuel saying, they have not rejected you, they have rejected me as their king. Sometimes we're so intent on being accepted by everyone around us that we try hard to become like them in the hope that we could belong to and be a better part of the world around us. But the world around Israel at that time was corrupt, depraved, and given to detestable practices. It would not serve Israel to be like everyone else simply because the Lord was raising Israel to be a light to the nations. Samuel reluctantly submits the will of the Lord and anoints Saul from the tribe of Benjamin as first king over Israel. From the outside, everything looks good. It looked perfect. Here was a man, tall and handsome, and if you read the text, taller and handsomer than anyone else in Israel, according to 1 Samuel. Now this man, Saul, anointed as king, rules over Israel. Soon, a new tragedy begins to unfold. Saul looked right and perfect for the job on the outside by deep within. He was a tormented man, tormented by insecurity, jealousy, pride, and an innate arrogance that got in the way of leading God's people. 
A man who is not led by the Lord cannot lead for the Lord. And Saul's life is a wonderful example of that. Saul becomes the first in a long line of rebellious kings who led the people astray, away from the Lord. As much as David's stories are interspersed in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel is really about Saul. It highlights his meager success and major failures as a person and as a king who spends most of his time chasing David than ruling Israel. One thing is clear as we read first and second books of Samuel together in the Jewish Bible. David understands that Saul has been chosen and appointed by the Lord and as such, even though his life has been made miserable by this man, by Saul, and his jealous anger towards him, David refuses to raise his hand against him. Even though he had opportunities and the unanimous support of the people around him, David refuses to lay a hand on Saul, saying, I will not lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. David understands that the mantle of leadership is not something you take for yourself. You receive it, not from any earthly power, but only from the Lord. He was anointed as the next king of Israel long before he was accepted as their king. But David refuses to take the kingdom away from Saul, even though the same man who anointed Saul also anointed David. David refuses to force God's hand or take advantage of technicalities. He trusts God. 2 Samuel, our book for today, begins in sadness, picking up where 1 Samuel ends with the death of Saul and Jonathan at the hands of the Philistines, killed in battle. David unashamedly mourns his best friend, Jonathan, and the man who chased him around Israel with a vengeance. That gives us a bird's eye view into David's heart. When the dust of death settles and the confederation of all the tribes in Israel are still divided, some are still allegiant to Saul's family, accepting Ishbosheth, his son, as their king, and some following David. And this, because of this division within the body of Israel, there is a civil war between the house of Saul and the house of David and the people that support them. This period of internal strife does not last very long. Saul's son is assassinated, and soon the entire nation, all 12 tribes and the Levites, recognize David as their king. He had been ruling for seven and a half years in Hebron. Now he moves to Jerusalem as the king of the entire nation. Soon after, David goes to war with the Philistines, avenging the death of Saul and Jonathan. He brings the Ark of the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant, to Jerusalem. And now David desires to build a temple for the Lord. We pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is what the Word of God reads. Now it came about when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I live in a house of cedar. But the ark of God remains within the tent. Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your mind, 
for the Lord is with you. This is one of those occasions the prophet speaks for himself and not for the Lord, perhaps. But in the same night, correction from the Lord. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and say to my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Should you build me a house for my dwelling? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. Rather, I have been moving about in a tent that is a, in a dwelling place. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people? Saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, this is what you shall say to my servant David, God speaking to the prophet Nathan. This is what the Lord of armies says. I myself took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be a leader over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have eliminated all your enemies from you. I will also make a great name for you, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. And I will establish a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will malicious people oppress them anymore as previously. Even from the day that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Nathan continues, the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are finished and you lie down with your fathers, die. I will raise up your descendant after you who will come from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with strokes of sons of mankind. But my favor shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from you. Your house, God says to David, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and all of this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. God's promise to David in its immediate setting, is about the grace and mercy God would show David's immediate successor, Solomon, his son, who did indeed build a temple in Jerusalem. God's promise to David in its ultimate setting is no longer about Solomon, but about Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and the son of God, as you can see in the genealogical record of the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. So God's promise to David meant everything to David because it was an immediate assurance for him. But God's promise to David is significant far beyond David's lifetime or Solomon's lifetime for that matter because it is significant for Israel as a nation, the church today, and through the church and Israel for the rest of the world. This is a crucial promise this covenant of the Lord with David. 
God's covenant with David, God's promise to David is physical rest, peace and prosperity established through absolute victory over his enemies. God's promise to David is also about spiritual rest, something that will begin with his generation, but will only be firmly established way in the future in Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of God, Messiah. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28, 29, and 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is comfortable and my burden is light. When we read Isaiah chapter 11 and chapter 65, and we read Jeremiah chapter 31, we learn about this rest. Isaiah 11, Isaiah 65, and Jeremiah 31, among other passages. When we read these chapters, we see about, we learn about the rest for all believers in Jesus Christ. And this will come to pass when the son of David, son of God, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, will sit on David's throne forever. Both the land, the promised land, and the land in general, and the people of the Lord will enjoy the Sabbath rest, the spiritual rest that we all have been promised. So the promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is in the immediate context about Solomon and the physical land that God gave them in faithfulness to his promise to Abraham long ago. In its ultimate context, it is about Jesus Christ, son of Abraham, son of David, son of God, the Messiah, and it is about our eternal spiritual inheritance. After David, Solomon will rule, but his rule will come to an end with his death. But the throne will always and forever, forever be occupied by Jesus Christ. No enemy, not even death, will defeat him. The throne will be his forever. In him, in Jesus Christ, son of Abraham, son of David, Son of God, Messiah, we will all receive both physical and spiritual blessings, emphasis on the spiritual blessings. You see, there are three things we learn today from 2 Samuel chapter 7. It helps put things into perspective. God is not elected by anyone. This is not a popularity contest. We don't get to vote God to the throne as we vote politicians and government. God is not elected. There is no universal ballot where planets and constellations and galaxies get to choose who gets to be God. God is not elected. He is God. He does not need any election for himself to reign. The second truth we understand from Scripture is God is not appointed by anyone. Because whenever there is an appointment, someone of higher authority appoints someone of lower authority. 
even in a government, the people appoint their leaders. And as much as the leaders lead the people, ultimately, the seat of ultimate authority in a democracy rests with the people of that nation. Not always in practice, but at least in constitution and in theory. So God is not elected by anyone. God is not appointed by anyone. There is no one greater than God to appoint him to be God, to rule, to reign in sovereignty, in justice, in righteousness. No one appoints God. No one can appoint God. The third truth we learn from 2 Samuel chapter 7 is God did not inherit his throne. He has no father. He has no one before him. He's unbegun. And as such, God is not inheriting his reign from someone else. It's not a bestowed privilege. He has not been entrusted this responsibility of governing the universe and creation by someone else. He's not elected. He's not appointed. He does not inherit. God is God. And as such, the throne belongs to him. It is his to give and it is his to take. Human kings and queens may reign, but only in as much as God entrusts them that responsibility and that capacity. So if we are disappointed and frustrated with our kings and our queens and our leaders, presidents and prime ministers, even the smaller local authorities, Ultimately, our grievance must be addressed to God who can make a change. While we may speak up, and it is our right to speak up, ultimately, the only authority that can make anything happen, that can bring about lasting change is God, who is not elected, not appointed, and who does not inherit any authority, any throne from anyone. God is beyond all this. And as such, God speaks through his prophet. David, it is not about what you can do for me, but what I can do for you. You want to build me a house of wood, stone, brick, and mortar, but I will build you a house forever. The truth of the matter is, what we build for God will only last for a while, but what God builds for us will last forever. Because somehow the builder's qualities are evident in what the builder builds. Since we are not eternal, whatever we build will eventually fall apart. Every once in a while, an archaeologist goes on a dig and discovers something from 7,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago. And they tell us this was a civilization, these were a people, this was a culture, this is what we have learned from this part and that piece of metal. And they study this culture together. But ultimately, all the great civilizations of the past have fallen. And whatever they have built... Ruins remain, and we just imagine what they used to look like. Whether it is the art of Greece, the pyramids of Egypt, or the ruined heaps in ancient Babylon, in ancient Persia. 
ultimately, no matter what we build and how well we build it, our finite nature is reflected in what we build. But God says to David, what you build for me may not last, but what I build for you will last forever. I will take one of your descendants, for now, Solomon, eventually Jesus. And through them, I will establish, through Solomon, I will establish your throne in Israel for a while. In Jesus, I will establish your throne forever. And as such, we should be more excited about what God builds for us, what God lays out for us than everything or anything you and I could do for him. The throne belongs to God forever. He who is not elected, he who is not appointed, he who is not inheriting his authority from anyone. This throne, it is his. It has been his. It is now his. It will be his forever. It cannot be taken from him because it was not given to him. It was his and it'll always be his. This throne belongs to him forever. It always has been his, and so it cannot be taken. It cannot be stolen. Another thing we learn about God on his throne is God is not a man that he would squander his throne. He will not abdicate his throne. He will not outsource his sovereignty or responsibilities. He rules. This unelected, unappointed God, who did not inherit but possesses sovereignty by virtue of who he is, rules in righteousness and justice. And that's our assurance. And that was David's assurance. And through this passage is a promise that assures us today. From a personal standpoint, the question is, if God is enthroned in our hearts, that's where this passage is leading to today. If we apply this passage to us, the question is, is God enthroned in our hearts? Because he has given us the gift of free will. We have to intentionally, deliberately, of our own free will, choose to enthrone God in our hearts. We cannot unseat him from his throne in history or in creation. But in sin and rebellion, we can assign, we can choose to assign our hearts to another or hoard this authority, this throne, all for ourselves. So you and I have to make a choice, make a decision each day. Who will reign in our hearts? The choice is given to us, it's entrusted to us. If Jesus reigns, and if his rule is established in our hearts through obedience to his word, and by submission to his will, we are his disciples, his subjects. But if we enthrone our flesh, or ourselves, we will certainly perish. A life that submits to God's rule reflects his righteousness. A life that submits to God's rule reflects his righteousness. When we embrace God's will, the Holy Spirit fulfills God's purposes in and through us. 
God accomplishes all of this and he can without us. But it is God's desire that we participate in what he's doing in our world and partner with him through obedient submission. David humbled himself and heeding God's word revealed through his prophet Nathan, fully submitted to God's will and thereby received God's reward. In doing so, David becomes an example to all of us today. Our heart is a seat. A throne is just a fancy word for a seat. Our heart is a seat. It is always a temporary or a permanent seat for someone or something. Whoever or whatever sits on this seat, our heart, rules over us. Whoever or whatever that sits on our throne, on this seat, our heart, chooses one thing over another and makes decisions that determine where our life goes and what our life does and generally how our life lives. This seat, our heart, yours and mine, is a very fickle seat. A choosy seat. An impulsive seat. It chooses its own comfort above all things. It is for this reason we struggle with our submission and obedience to the Lord. You see, temporary, partial, and selective submission is an act of contempt. Temporary, partial, selective submission is an act of contempt before the Lord. Because temporary, partial, and selective, arbitrary submission says, you are good, but not good enough. So by temporarily giving up this seat to the Lord, arbitrarily entrusting this seat to the Lord, selectively entrusting our hearts to God, what we're saying is you have probationary use of this seat, not permanent use. It's due for review, evaluation, and future consideration. So you have probationary use, authority over my heart. So ultimately what we're looking for is a God that submits to us. Because if we reserve the right to take this seat at any time away from whomever we give this to, ultimately authority rests in us. That's an act of contempt. And it's an act of idolatry, placing ourselves above God to whom our hearts belong and must belong. Because it's a fickle seat, 
because it's an impulsive seat, because it's driven by the flesh. Sometimes we sit on this seat and we say to the Lord, you have my heart in poverty. Why? So you may bless me. You have my heart in sickness and in disease. Why? So you could heal me. You have my heart in loneliness and loss. Why? So you could comfort me. What we are essentially saying is, you don't have my heart when I'm, pro when I'm prosperous because I cannot and may not be able to give what you ask of me. You cannot have my heart when I'm healthy and satisfied and comfortable because you may ask for something I'm unable or do not want to give. So you have probationary use of the seat, God. When I'm poor, when I'm hurting, when I'm lonely, when I'm grieving, when I'm confused, when I'm lost, you have probationary use over my heart. But once my life enters a season of comfort and joy and celebration, you have to vacate the seat because I want to sit on it. In times of distress, you have probationary use. The moment my life becomes great, you have to step down because I want to sit on the seat and reign over my life. Sounds familiar. It does to me. I have given probationary use over my heart to the Lord most of my life. If not for God's mercy and grace, I wouldn't be around to be speaking to you today. So what we're essentially saying is, here I'm making a selective temporary decision to entrust this throne to you and you're on probation, God. I would like to take this seat back from you anytime I so please because I want to sit on my throne and I want to make a decision that suits my better interests first. And I would like to do everything all by myself. It's only when I cannot do anything and I cannot go anywhere, I cannot be anything, then I will vacate the seat for a season, for a specific reason, then you may sit on it. That's not the God we serve. God commands. He does not take orders. Why? He's not elected. He's not appointed. And this privilege of sovereignty was not given to him by anyone or anything. That brings us to one question. David wants to build God a house. God says, David, Solomon will build me a house. But because you wanted to build me a house, here is something you should know. I will build you a house. And this house will last forever. I will place a descendant, your descendant, on this throne. And he will reign in righteousness and justice forever. No one will be able to unseat him or take away this power from him. And David submits. 
He might be disappointed, looks like he's disappointed, but the prayer tells us that he accepts God's decision and embraces it, trusting God that he will do what he has promised. And as in doing so, David becomes a great example for us. The question is, will we follow this wonderful example? If we do, everlasting spiritual rest awaits us. If we do not, our souls will never find rest, ever. The choice is ours. Does God have probationary use over our hearts? Do we only enthrone him for a while, for a specific reason, so that you may bless me, but once I am blessed, please vacate. So that you may heal me, but once I am healed, please step down. So that you may help me find my place in the world you have created, but once I find my rightful place and my life has equilibrium and everything is stable and everything is running according to plan and I'm comfortable, please step down because I would like to have my seat. Your heart and mine are seats. There's always someone or something sitting on it. The question for us this morning, if your heart is a seat, if my heart is a seat, who is seated on it today? Who will be seated on it forever?